Hi everyone. Uh, today's passage, which is found in Mark one, uh, Mark chapter one, uh, verses fourteen through twenty. Uh, Mark one fourteen through twenty. Uh, let me read for us, and I'll pray, and then we'll go right into the the time of the message. Verse fourteen. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe in the gospel passing alongside the sea of Galilee he saw Simon and Andrew the brother of Simon casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen and Jesus said to them follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. That is God's word. Uh, please fire your hands with me, and let's... Uh, pray to God uh, once more. Um, Heavenly Father, we um, come before you, uh, before your word. Uh, could you, would you uh, humble our hearts as we hear your word and uh, help us to um, look to you as a holy God, that these words are holy. It's uh, in a different category. Um, and therefore, we acknowledge that we are in desperate need of your word. Uh, we don't have this word naturally. We need you to speak to us. And uh, we are grateful for the promise that the Holy Spirit can prepare our hearts supernaturally, even when there may be different distractions in our lives, things that are hindering us from heeding your word. Uh, so Lord, help us, God. May your spirit Make our hearts come alive right now and uh, get to uh, love your word, cherish your word, cherish this time together that we can be built up as a church uh, as well as as in, in individuals uh, of following you, God. But thank you again. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, three points for this message. Uh, first point, the anticipated invitation uh, second is the gracious invitation. And the third, the radical response. Uh, first, the anticipated invitation. So look with me to verse 14. Uh, Mark says, After John was arrested, uh, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. So what we see here right away is that uh, until this point of book of Mark, uh, John the Baptist was a prominent figure, but now he's you know, exiting from the stage. And later we'll learn that uh, he was arrested by King Herod as a result of him speaking out against him for his immorality. But at this point, we don't have to care about that because now all eyes are on Jesus as the main character and hero of the story as he should be. And now, what does Jesus do as the main character right away? And we read that 
he proclaims or preaches the gospel of God. And we will see the content of what the gospel is in verse 15. So let's read together here. It says, And saying, the, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Uh, when Jesus says the time is fulfilled, what that means is that God in the Old Testament promised, he had promised that the Messiah would come and bring God's reign, God's kingdom on earth. Uh, if you go to uh, Isaiah 52, 7, it says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. It means that the kingdom, God's kingdom, uh, would come to save people from chaos and misery into the true peace and happiness in God. Good news, true happiness and peace in this chaotic world. And the time has now come with Jesus. Jesus brought this kingdom with them. And that's why he says the kingdom is at hand. And he is inviting people into this true happiness. Invitation. Um, I kind of shared this story before here and there. But uh, this time I'll give you a little more detail of what happened. So two winters ago... Um, our water heater broke, water boiler broke out of nowhere. And I called the technician right away and, um, and he came and you know, he examined the uh, water heater and he said, it can't be fixed, it can't be repaired. Uh, the, the, the parts are so old. So he said he would have to replace it with a new, like brand new water heater. What that meant was that we would be without warm water for several days. And what made, the, what made the situation really bad for us is that at that time, uh, my wife Deb had just given birth to our son Seth and her parents were staying with us, uh, you know, coming from Maryland to help us out. So in the middle of the winter, in, in December, the total of four adults and, and one infant in one house did not have warm water for several days. I don't know how long, I forget, but it was long enough that we really felt miserable. Uh, it was absolutely nightmare. Just imagine, you know, with me here. Uh, like, we were desperate, so we were trying to boil water, cold water, on our stove, on our range, uh, in like our crock pots. And uh, so we would have some hot water, and then we would have to bring those or smaller pots whenever we had to wash our hands and wash dishes or whatever. But the worst was when, I, when we had to take shower, right? Like, it's so hard to bring those crock pots to shower. So I think I ended up just not taking shower for several days. I had to, right? And, you know, I just felt really gross and smelly and I was just, just absolute misery right there. But then when that promised day came, the technician came and he uh, spent a couple of hours uh, and he finally installed the new, brand new water heater. And after he left, I turned on the faucet slowly 
and out came a gush of warm water. And what did I do right away? I took a shower. And that was glorious. I just felt like, man, this is the best shower ever. I, I've been to different saunas before, but this is the best one. I loved it. But spiritually speaking, uh, we have similar experience. You know, everyone in the world uh, tries to figure life out, right? And try to discover, you know, happiness and fulfillment, um, but without God in the picture. So the end result is the cold reality without hope and future because nothing in the world can truly satisfy us. So God in love had promised that he would send the living warm water, so to speak, with the arrival of Messiah. And he finally came. Jesus Christ finally came and now he's inviting all of us with open arms promising that we can truly feel the warmth of our soul through him. So here we see Jesus welcoming any and every one of us to experience this salvation and true warmth of our soul. The time is fulfilled. But what's interesting, as we'll see in the next point, is that Jesus doesn't just stand there and you know, have his arms open, but we'll see in the story that he actually walks around and goes around everywhere. He seeks and pursues after people to have them join this kingdom. That's the kind of God that we have. So next point, the gracious invitation. Verse 16, it says, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Uh, this scene that we just read has to shock us. The reason is that, you know, we just saw in the previous verses that Jesus just inaugurated his kingdom, God's kingdom, heavenly kingdom on earth. So we would expect perhaps, you know, him parading into a major city in the world, uh, perhaps like a financial or cultural hub, like a New York City or something, and just, you know, show off. Or we, we would expect him to uh, try to recruit you know, people to be his assistants from you know, institutions like Harvard or Washington, D.C., you know, their political scenes, you know, things like that. That's our, that's our expectation, perhaps. But here, in the verse that we just read, Jesus is walking by a lakeshore in Galilee. Uh, last week, I compared Galilee to Idaho, and I no longer wish to offend the great state of Idaho. Uh, but you got the point that uh, Galilee was not a significant area at the time. And they were, the area was rather neglected and looked down upon. The people were looked down upon as uneducated people. And within the Gal Galilee province, we find Jesus walking in a remote village and we find out that it's a fishing village. So it might have been smelly and not very glorious. And furthermore, Jesus seems to be recruiting Simon and Andrew. And also, you know, a few, few verses down, we find he's recruiting James and John, uh, four of which, all of which were fishermen, to be part of the cabinet of his administration. 
something's not really fitting here to our standard. Here, Mark is trying to show us through this that God's kingdom moves forward and expands not through human ingenuity, but it moves and expands through God's sovereign grace. That's why he's trying to show us. So follow with me here in verse 16 again. We see that Jesus sees Simon and Andrew. And if you go down to verse 19, it says Jesus again sees uh, James and John. Mark's intentional there. He's repeating the word sees, meaning that he sees these guys first, even before these guys saw themselves to be a part of this kingdom maybe worthy of this kingdom. They didn't see that. Uh, Verse 17, it says, And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. And here, he's inviting them, right? Again, like like we saw in the previous point, that he's inviting all of us, and he's inviting these guys to the kingdom. And then he says this. Please get this. Jesus promises that he will make them become fishers of men. Uh, Just really quick there, the metaphor, uh, fishers of men is obvious enough, uh, meaning that uh, humanity, according to the Bible, uh, is swimming and drowning in the sea of sin and hopelessness. And and Simon and Andrew could become God's kingdom workers uh, who rescue people uh, into the kingdom by preaching the word of God. The, the word of the gospel. And that was to be their role, uh, fishers of men. But the emphasis here is that it is Jesus that will make them into such valuable workers. In other words, Simon and Andrew, as they are, are not noticeable. They are, again, uneducated fishermen who cannot possibly become valuable by their own volition, by their own ability. But Jesus can and will grow them into essential workers for his kingdom's sake. Jesus will do that. So here, what we see is, in in recruiting his own people for his kingdom, Jesus initiates and he equips and he perfects his workers. And as a result, you know, if there's any fruit from his workers, all credit goes to Jesus, not to these natural workers under uh, his kingdom. Yesterday, um, maybe you can go to the next slide, a picture there. Yesterday, my my wife, Deb, um, was baking some pastries, and uh, she involved our almost two-year-old son, Seth, in the process. And, and it's impressive to me because I hate baking myself. And it just stressed me out just even thinking about involving our son in that process. But she did it. And that's what happened. And, uh, and so, as you can see there, she had him uh, stand on a chair uh, by the countertop. Uh, so the, the next picture there. Um, and he was there the whole time uh, by, by her side. And she walked him through every step and taught him you know, how to make shapes like that and, you know, like how to move the doughs and like how to, you know, bake basically the, the whole process. Uh, but 
behind, you know, aside from this picture, she told me later while I was away that, that he just made, made a lot of mess, as you can imagine. You know, he would like throw things and he would just destroy all these shapes that he just made with her. And uh, as a result, apparently the whole process took several more hours than it would normally take for her. Uh, but then, if you go to the last picture, next picture, that's the result. The, uh, it was very good looking pastry with the apple, uh, you know, and nutmeg and all, this, all that good stuff in it. And it was really tasty. Like I devoured four or five in one sitting right away. It was so good. Now, uh, did Deb, my wife, recruit Seth because he was a skilled baker? Or let alone a, a helpful helper? No. <laughs> I love my son, but that's not, that's farthest from the truth. Not helpful. But she brought him along. Why? Because she loves him. And because she wanted him to experience the joy of baking. And to eventually become, you know, grow into not just a good baker, but you know, gain some skills for other things in life. And then the, when the result came out, you know, I, I did congratulate Seth uh, and applaud him saying like, oh, good job, you're so cute. You know, you helped mama, <laughs> you know. But that wasn't because of the, like his real work, but you know, just participation, you know, we, we were happy about that. But when I turned to my wife, that was a real compliment, right? Because it was her product, it was her skill. And I really especially appreciated her patience in involving uh, our son in the process. You see, likewise, you know, Jesus brings along people like Simon and Andrew, not because they were skillful or helpful in any measure, but because he loves them and he wants them to experience the joy of the kingdom and especially the joy of doing his missions of saving souls. And he patiently guides them and he will grow them through many of their failures and you know, them making messes. Uh, and, and he will make them into capable workers for his kingdom. And again, at the end of the day, any fruit that these disciples will make and produce, uh, all the credit will go to Jesus because it was his work from the beginning to the end. And if you really get this picture and truth, I think it's such an encouraging truth, isn't it? I think many of us, if not all of us, can be consumed about our own abilities. We can beat ourselves up uh, by our own standards or by God's standards, and we get discouraged uh, and wonder we can do anything for God. But if Jesus uses people who don't have much to show off. In reality, it's interesting. If you read through the book of Mark, he keeps repeating the failures of the disciples uh, because, as a side note, Mark himself, he read through the book of Acts, he himself failed big time. He betrayed his associate, Paul. He, he quit, but then Paul restored him later. The side note, but you see, Mark wanted to show us through the failures of himself and disciples that, hey, it's not about you. Jesus can use anybody. 
And what that means is even as a church, to, not just you know, individually, but as a church to CLC, man can be used by God despite our imperfections and failures for the mission of the cities around us. Amazing. Meaning there's always hope in Jesus if we humbly acknowledge our weaknesses and submit to his guidance and participate in what he's doing. He will make it happen. It's not about us. It's about what Jesus does. The gracious invitation. And third and last, the radical response. Verse 18, Mark says, And immediately they left their nets and followed him, followed Jesus. So upon the call from Jesus and his promise of making them into fishers of men, Simon and Andrew leave their job and their livelihood and follow Jesus. And go down to verse 19 and 20, uh, Mark's, Mark goes along saying that, And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his, John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets, and immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the higher servants and followed him. Uh, so James and John not only left their work, their, their job, their career, but also they left their family, their father, their, their family ties in order to follow Jesus. So Mark here is trying to highlight for us the radical nature of Discipleship, the radical nature of what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, that, that you have to make hard decisions, uh, you know, such as abandoning important things and important people in our lives to follow Jesus. And at this point, if you're taking this seriously, the question might be, does this mean that in order to be a Christian, in order to be a follower of Christ, uh, do you have to... Do, must you leave your secular jobs uh, and you know, your families and sign up for the full-time ministry position? Is that the call here? So we must clarify uh, what Mark really means uh, by this description of the disciples. And, and here's what he means. If you continue to read through the book of Mark as well as the other Gospels, uh, you will see that Simon actually retained his fishing boat and you know, his fishing occupation, and he would fish here and there for a living. Uh, in fact, um, you know, Jesus travels in a boat uh, often, and it's very likely that he was using uh, you know, Simon's boat. And also, uh, you will see that Simon and Andrew uh, kept their house, they didn't sell it, and, and their families were in it, and they're interacting with it, they didn't leave their families. Uh, and in fact, their house becomes sort of a ministry base for Jesus. He always meets there as his, you know, again, like a camp. And lastly, Apostle Peter, uh, Apostle Paul, rather, he rebukes in uh, 2 Thessalonians uh, some people who were not working and not, you know, providing for themselves materially. And also in other letters, he exhorts people to honor their families, and especially their parents, and take care of them. So it's clear that Mark and the rest of the scriptures 
uh, do not mean that in every occasion you are to literally leave your other callings in life in order to follow Jesus. But what they do mean is this, that once you follow Jesus, your primary identity has to radically change. Here's what I mean. You know, before Christ, everyone has identity in something or someone, right? For some of us, uh, their career and school are their identity. So if you do well in these areas, they feel proud. But if they fail to do well, they're crushed because their destiny and identity are in them. For others of us, their families can be our identities. You know, especially, you know, our parents' approval of us can be so important to us so that if they approve of our performance, uh, then, you know, we feel good. But if they disapprove of how we do things in life or if, if they reject us, it can sound like a death sentence for some of us. What that means is that career and family can be gods that we live for. But once you follow Jesus, now Christ has to be the primary identity. What that means is that your career and school are now ways and platforms for you to glorify Christ, just as Christ used Simon's boat and house for his purposes. But if they somehow conflict with the interests of Christ, you would be willing to abandon them in order to honor Christ. It also means that your families are indeed God's blessings, and we are to honor them, like we saw, uh, as much as we can as, as we honor Christ. But if their opinion gets in the way of your glorifying Christ, you know, we, we have to spell out what that means you know, as we uh, apply that, but in any way, if their opinion gets in the way of our glorifying Christ, you would be willing to put them in second place in order to obey Christ as your first. By doing this in your life, Christ is the true God that you live for. And here I want to highlight what's important in this principle is that, that you would want to do this as opposed to you have to. Meaning that having Christ as your identity, your primary identity, uh, means that you have personally experienced, you discover personally the value of Christ, that He is soul-satisfying, that you tasted His love for you, that His love for you is unconditional, based, not based on your performance, on your good days or bad days. He loves you, and you cherish that. You realize that that's enough for your life. You don't need anybody else. You don't need anything else to satisfy you, to satisfy your soul and fill up your void. So He is your identity. He is your desire. You, didn't, you don't need anything else. So you would gladly, you know, if we have to, give up anything and everything uh, to honor Him. That's what it means to be uh, having our identity in Christ. And please follow with me here. So, in fact, uh, what we just looked at is exactly what Jesus meant in verse 15. You know, when he invited people to the kingdom of God, what did it say? It said, repent and believe in the gospel. The word repent means the change of mindset 
that results in the drastic change in lifestyle. That's what repentance means. And that's exactly what happens when you change your identity, right? So that's what it just means. And also, that repentance can happen only if you believe in your heart that Jesus is your soul desire, that he's worth it, he's worth dying for. You experience it, you believe in your heart, you're convicted in your heart that he will fulfill you. But not only that, like we saw in the last point, that you believe that he can change you into his disciple and his fisher of men, that he can make you great for his kingdom. You believe with all your heart. Only then, you know, you can repent, you can change your identity. In other words, it comes down to, it all comes down to whether we trust who Jesus is as a person. Do you see that? It comes down to whether you believe who he is for you in your life. And that takes time. Let me just share one story here. Um, you know, I shared in the past, I think some of you know, if you have been in sales for a while, I shared uh, quite a few times that I ended up attending uh, five different high schools. I moved around quite a bit. And one of the high schools that I attended was in New York City, uh, in Long Island, in my junior year. And uh, when I first moved there, uh, my mom uh, signed me up and she sent me off to this Ivy League tour uh, where this tour company would jam-packed students, high school students, and they would take us to like this, you know, Ivy League schools in New England. And we would like, you know, talk to some people there and take pictures and, you know, dream about applying to these schools. And, and uh, you know, my, my mom's expectation of me was very clear here, uh, although I didn't get into any of them. Um, but anyways, during this trip, I met a lot of, you know, different people, different uh, of my peers. Uh, that, that were around my age. And there was this one particular guy uh, that I didn't really like for some reason. Um, you might have to like, kind of know like, how guys work, dynamics. Um, here's what I mean. I didn't like him, I think because when we first met, he kind of gave me a bad look. I didn't like that. And... Uh, and, and he kind of acted weird around me whenever, like, you know, we we're, like, kind of in our vicinity, in close vicinity. I didn't like that. And I, I, I knew that he didn't like me either. So we didn't like each other. And what we would do is that we would kind of, like, you know, like, walk towards one another. And we would kind of, like, intentionally bump into one another. And, like, we got into, like, fights almost like almost fights, like, you know, like a couple of times. And I think, looking back, I think that's how teenage boys uh, would try to declare their territory, I think, <laughs> like animals, uh, I think. But that's what happened. But at a certain point, uh, we just randomly started talking to one another. And before you know it, uh, we became very close and uh, at the end of the trip, we practically became best friends. <laughs> and uh, we just started talking about a lot of deep things. And, and he was Christian, and, you know, and I was not at the time. And he started sharing about you know, his testimony and a lot of deep things. And even after the trip, we you know, kept in touch through 
no other than MSN Messenger. Okay. I found out from the Aldo Fellowship that there are only like just a couple of 30s people now in our church. So, yeah, hopefully you know what this means, MSN Messenger. Okay. Anyways, all right. So, yeah, him and I became really good friends. And what this shows to me is for any relationship, uh, a personal relationship grows only when you start talking talking to the person and get to know the person. And through that process, you start building trust in that person. That's how relationship grows. And and with that in mind, uh, look with me to John 135 to 42. a little bit of a long passage, but you'll see what I, why I'm trying to read this with you before we finish. John chapter 1, it says, The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, John the Baptist, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Uh, It's a little different from Mark, right? You know, Mark, uh, it seems that his goal was to highlight, again, the radical nature of the discipleship in his account. But if you look at other angles of the same story from other, other Gospels, like the one that we just read in the book of John, you get to realize that the disciples in our story weren't making an impulsive decision when they abandoned everything to follow Jesus. That they heard about Jesus before the Mark's story, that, he, that they met Jesus through John the Baptist, they heard about Jesus through John, and they themselves uh, got to spend time with Jesus, you know, where they must have you know, conversed with them, asked them other questions. And you know, over time, they must have built that trust with them. And then when we come back to our uh, passage in Mark, that's where we see the, the built trust and faith getting expressed, that they're following him. Why? Not because they're like, oh, I feel like him. No, they build trust in this person. They were convinced that he was the son of God. Likewise, our faith, you and I, we are all on the same plane. Our faith in Jesus takes time. It grows in a not instant way, but it takes time. And therefore, we grow to put our identity in Christ over time. It doesn't happen overnight but gradually. And the main means of the growth, the Bible says, is the Word of God. Like right now, as you're listening to 
my delivery of God's word, that does something to us. And when we process it in our life groups, that does something to us. And when you read the Bible in a relational way with Jesus you know, every day, that does something because that's how we get to know Jesus on a personal level. And that's how we get to know him and get to build our trust in him. And that will lead us to put our faith and identity in Christ. But I do want to remind you before I close that even so in our endeavor to do that, our ultimate hope is in Christ. Why? Like we saw, he initiates, he equips, he perfects his disciples. He is the ultimate hope even when we fail, even when we stumble along the way. Our hope is in him and he will, he promises, he will make us the fishers of men and help us bear fruit. And in that, we can take heart and endure week by week, day by day, trying to get to know Jesus by his strength. Let's pray together. Let's spend some time um, just praying before uh, we uh, finish with this song. You know, Jesus, his arms are open wide. He's the fulfillment of God's promises. In fact, Apostle Paul says that all promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. And he came historically. He walked on earth. And the invitation to his kingdom is still wide open to us. And instead of him just standing in one locale, he went everywhere searching for us. And now after ascending into heaven, he entrusted his disciples to spread his news. And somehow it came to us in the United States. Wow. He is searching us. He is searching for and pursuing after us right now. Wanting us to be the people, the fisher of men. Reaching the highest potential that God only God can accomplish. Again, what that means is no matter how you see yourself, no matter what failures, no matter what stumbling along the way, no matter what shame, no matter how we feel, He can use us by His strength, by His redemption. Can we go to God together? Can we go to our Lord Jesus Christ? Just come as we are. What this really requires is our humility, right? If we are just standing aloof, thinking that we can't accomplish things for ourselves and for God, we can never experience God's transforming power. But if we come before Him humbly, just asking Jesus, God, work in me. You are my only hope. Work in me, God. Make my life worthwhile. I don't want to waste my life by putting my identity in worthless things. I want my life to count. Help me, Lord. You are my only hope. Help me. Could we do that before we finish?
Let's pray together. Close for us, but um, just kind of encourage us to just take uh, just one minute, uh, just believing everything that Jesus is. That you know whatever deadlines coming up at your work, um, whatever exam that you have to face, or you have already faced that you're waiting for. The scores or whatnot. Can we believe at least for one minute together as a church that all those things do not have claim on us if you are in Jesus Christ? That right now, regardless of what happened in those areas, that Jesus Christ loves us. In the deepest part of our hearts, that He loves us. He covers us, covers our wounds from all the secondary identities. No matter what, that's what it means. The gospel says, no matter what, Jesus Christ will never let us go. He will always love us. Can we do that just for one minute? Before I finish, let's trust that, trust in that promise and experience that freedom in Christ. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Father, uh, thank you for your invitation to your kingdom that is not dependent on our credentials because we don't have any. All the things that we think we can boast in all melt away before your holiness but it is the righteousness of Christ that invites us covers us with the royal robe considering us to be sons and daughters of God and may that free us God to be fearless when doing your work, when doing things that really matter in our lives. And may that drive us even tomorrow and Monday when we go back to work, go back to school and classes and um, just different relationships in our lives. May we uh, worship Christ through all those platforms and find freedom from the result or consequences because Jesus is making us fishers of men. So may you bless our hearts, God, and encourage our hearts and give us hope um, by turning away from ourselves and turning to Christ, our living hope. Uh, and may our foundation and security be firm in Christ, not be swayed by the circumstances of our lives. I want to pray for especially those of us who have been discouraged in their walk with you. God, you know their hearts, you know their stories. Help them know that they're not done yet. So may you um, just grab hold of their hearts even right now so that they will not give up, but continue to seek you and find love and freedom in you, God. Thank you, Lord.